up to this point, we've determined that there is a story to the Old Testament that we can reduce the 39 books of the Old Testament down to 11 books. And if we read those books from beginning to end, we have what I call the storyline, which is the beginning of the Old Testament message with the sequential events of each story falling in line one after another until we get to the end. Everything that God wants us to understand. The, other, the, other, the rest of the 39 books are important as well. How do they fit in? We've talked about that. What we want to do now is focus in on these individual books. The 11 books are Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, then we have the exile, and then Ezra, Nehemiah. We want to look at each one of these individual books. Our focus in this time is going to look at the book of Genesis. If you have Bibles, you can open it up to the book of Genesis. We're going to do a big picture overview. We want to pay a little bit of attention to the content, some of the details of the story, big picture, but we really want to focus in on the theology, God and who he is and the way he's at work in this world and how does this apply to us? What does it have to do with our lives? So in the book of Genesis, we discussed earlier that the, Gen the book of Genesis covers the story from creation. God speaks into the existence, the world in which we live, and it follows through all of the depravity of the early part of the book to where God sets his affection on a chosen person, Abram. And then we follow this through Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. So it begins with creation and ends with the death of Joseph down in Egypt. When we think about the overall structure of the book, the first 11 chapters are a unit and the last chapters 12 through 50 are also a unit. Chapters 1 through 11 talks about our world, the world in which we live. Where did it come from? How did it get here? It also talks about our life in this world. What does it mean to be human? What is our role in this world? How, how does our life function? And it just through quick series of events, we go through 20 generations in this time. It shows man, humanity has a problem. And then the last chapters of the book, chapters 12 through 50, deals with the beginning of God's plan. So we've got our world, we've got our life in this world, and then we, got, we have the beginning of God's plan. What is God going to do about it? Chapters 1 through 11 establish a problem. Man is depraved. Humanity is sinful. Well, what's God going to do about it? How is he going to do something about it? The last chapters give us just a taste, just a glimpse, just the beginning of this. Overall, the book focuses on two specific points. The first one is it provides a basic understanding of human experience in this world. Just a very basic understanding. And even though I use the word basic, I want you to understand it's absolutely an essential understanding. We must understand. It's basic, but we must understand what this message is bringing forward to us. So it provides a basic understanding of human experience in this world. And then secondly, it provides the beginning of understanding that it's possible to have a relationship with God. It's possible to have a relationship with God. So human experience, just a little bit of understanding, a basic understanding, and then a beginning understanding that it's possible to have relationship with God. Now let's look at this a little more closely. When we look at the book of Genesis, 
we see that it, it, it provides for us an explanation of how things came to be the way they are. In other words, when we think about our life, regardless of what culture we might find ourselves living in, how did things come to be the way they are? What's the common human experience? The first 11 chapters ultimately do not seek to address scientific concerns as to whether or not we can prove creation or whether evolutionary theory is the way we are to understand. It doesn't intend to provide a complete history. We move very quickly through these chapters. What it does address is the specifics for understanding relationship with the Lord. And more specifically, the relationship between the Lord and his chosen people, Israel. So as a result, what it does is it lays a foundation for understanding certain elements in our world. And I want us to think about it in this way. It gives us a contrast between how the world God created to be was the function but also how the world is. So how God created it to be and how it is. There's a contrast between these two ideas. And what we want to do is we want to focus on this contrast. What did God intend for this world? But what is our experience in this world? So first of all, our world. Chapters one and two of Genesis focus in on that. If you look at these two chapters, you can see very clearly that what we see in these two chapters is God's design how God created this world to be, the things that he did, how he put it together, the role of humanity in this world. We see that the point ultimately of Genesis 1, which gives us the big picture of creation, the six days, the big picture, God spoke into existence the world. The ultimate point is it's God who created the world. It was by his spoken word that all things came into existence. There was no display of any kind of magnificent kind of displays of wonders and reality. He spoke and it came into existence. And so in chapter one, in the beginning, verse one, God created the heavens and the earth. He created it all. That's the summary statement. And the earth was formless and empty is what it says. So from the very beginning of creation, God just creates. And the two characteristics of this creation, formless and empty. And there's a beautiful symmetry to this chapter because in the first three days of creation, what God does is he forms. He forms light in day one, which eliminates the darkness. He forms the water and sky in day two, which eliminates this wateriness that's not differentiated. In day three, he forms land and plants and then in days four through six, he fills what he forms. And we find that on day four, these lights that God had formed, God now fills the sky with lights. And we've got sun and moon and stars. In day five, he fills this water and sky that he had separated earlier. He fills it with water animals and sky animals. And then day six, um, day three, God had he had formed the land and the plants and now in day six, he fills this land with land animals and with humanity. So this big picture of creation, it's formless and it's empty and so God fashions and he forms it by speaking and then he fills it by speaking into existence. And then we get to chapter two 
And we've seen this big picture of creation. We actually see the seventh day in chapter two in verses one through three. And what we see is that God intends for his creation to be a place of rest. Now imagine, imagine the world that God's created. It's a place of blessing. It's a place of blessing. What a beautiful world it is with so many things to see and experience and touch and feel and, and we can hear and we can, it's just the beauty of creation. It's a place of blessing. It says a lot about who God is. This is what he does for his creation. He creates this beautiful world. Now, chapter two, if, if chapter one is the big picture of creation, chapter two focuses in on humanity, the crowning act of God's creation. And it shows the goodness of creation for humanity. Humanity was created to have dominion over the rest of the world and to have relationship with its creator as well as with one another. So God brought humanity into relationship, not only with one another, but into relationship with him as well. And they had dominion over the rest of the world. There was to be a childlike innocence to the way in which humans related to the Lord and to one another, trust, independence. There was no shame. There was an openness. There was a beauty to the way functions, relationships functioned. There was a desire to please that was evident. And what we see is that then in the midst of all of this, in the Garden of Eden, God placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that served as the testing point for humanity. That was the test in the midst of the beauty of relationship, in the midst of all that God had created, the warmth and the desire to please and the confidence and the trust, there was a testing point. And that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, don't eat of that tree. Now, when we consider what God has done here, what we want to understand is that this is the one regulation that's in the Garden of Eden, one law, just one law that God passed on to humanity. And we must understand because we have a pattern here that's found throughout scripture. God's blessing always precedes God's demand for obedience. His blessing always precedes the demand for obedience. The call to obedience is to be able to remain in his blessing. So from the very beginning in the Old Testament, we don't see a God of wrath. We don't see this overwhelming, angry God who's ticked off at his creation all the time. What we see instead is a God who desires to bless, a God who desires to give good things. And he creates this beautiful world for his creation to live in so they can enjoy the blessings of it. But there's also a responsibility that comes with that. Life is not about the human. It's about God. It's about who he is. And so there's a testing point there. The issue is one of willfulness. And so God gives a paradise for humanity to live in. When we read chapters one and two, what we need to understand is this is how God created it to be. You and I were created for the Garden of Eden. You and I were created for this place of blessing where life worked well, where God poured out blessing on people and there was this enjoyment for living in the world. We were created for that. But immediately in the biblical text, we see a shift, we see a contrast. And so in chapters three to four, what we're gonna see in these chapters is the violation of God's design and we're going to see the contrast to how God created it to be and how it is. So this is our world. God created it. It's a beautiful place, a place of blessing. But now when we begin to focus on our life in this world, 
we have to see how it is. We were created for the Garden of Eden, but we don't live there. And so in chapter three, we have the specifics of what we call the fall of humanity. In chapter three, the serpent. And there's a lot we don't understand about this serpent. And did serpents all talk back then? But we understand the serpent as this this figure for Satan who comes into the garden. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the trees, fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And then immediately after that in verses eight and following, we have the encounter with God and all that transpires after that. We'll look at that in just a moment. But what we need to understand here in verses one through six is the sin. This is the violation of God's design. This is how it is in our world today. And we see that Satan works today in the same way he did back in the garden. Satan's schemes, his strategies have not changed. He continues to work this way. And notice what happens here in verse one. Look at the first part of the verse. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. He was deceptive. He was deceptive. Notice what the woman says later down in verse 13. When the Lord confronts, The woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It always begins with deception. And this deception is really bound up in this doubt that the serpent begins to give to the woman, doubting ultimately the goodness of God. You see the contrast of what's going on here? Chapters one and two clearly lay out for us God's blessing that he pours out on humanity. It's a beautiful world. It's a wonderful world. And God creates a garden in which humanity can live. And yet... The serpent comes along and doubts that God could be good? What about that one tree? Why would God hold that back from you? And notice the doubt in the, in, at the end of verse one. And he said to the woman, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And he's trying to move in there and create doubt for her. Verse five, you're not gonna die into verse four. Verse five, God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. He's withholding something from you. Is he really good? What about this option? What about this? And so there's this doubt that's created and that leads to desire for the woman in verse six. And so the woman considers this and when she looks at the tree and sees that it's good for food and it's pleasant to the eyes, it's desirable, it's the delight and it can make her wise, she considers this, she she puts this through her mind and then she takes from the fruit. There's this desire, deception, which is fueled by doubting God's goodness, which leads to this desire to have because God's withholding, he's not good. That's Satan's strategy. And what does that lead to? It leads to the disobedience. She takes from the fruit 
and she eats. She gives to her husband, and he eats also. Now, what Satan had held out for her was, God is withholding something from you. If you move in this direction, you have something that's good for you, that God's keeping from you. God's not necessarily good. This one rule, this one regulation, he's withholding something from you. Move in this direction, and you'll have something. And so the woman moves in that direction. The husband follows. And what do they end up with? Do they end up with good? Has God been holding something back from them and now that they grab it, they really got life now? No, it doesn't end up there at all. It's incredible what happens. Look at chapter three, verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. You've got to note the connection with verse seven of chapter three with what we have at the end of chapter two in verse 25. There it says, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Remember the childlike innocence, the trust, the dependency, the openness that was there. And now that they eat of the fruit, do they get more of that openness? No, they get shame and they cover themselves. The very first thing they do is hide from one another. What else does it lead to? It leads to fear. It leads to fear in verses eight through 10. And so they now hear God walking in the garden. And what do they do? They hide. They hide. Why? Because they've eaten of the fruit. And so the Lord says, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. Again, this self-consciousness, this awareness of their nakedness, when they hear God coming, they hide. So what does it lead to in human-to-human relationship? It leads to shame. What does it lead to in this relationship between humans and God? It leads to fear that's there. And so this, these humans who were created to be in relationship with one another are now hiding They feel shame and these humans who were created to be in relationship with God are now fearful and they're hiding in the bushes from him as well. The goodness that the serpent offers them doesn't happen. Instead, they get the consequences of moving in a direction away from the Lord. You see, not only does God create this world that's full of blessing because he wants to bless people, when God gives the law, When he gives that one regulation in the garden, don't eat of this tree, it is for the good of humanity. God does not impose regulations because he's the big, powerful God in the sky who can do whatever he wants. No, he gives the regulation because it's for their good. And this becomes a foreshadowing of the law. Eventually, God's gonna give a whole host of regulations. Why? For the good of his people because he loves them. Even the law is blessing. So we've already established Blessing always precedes law. And now we see law is blessing too. God loves, he's good. He wants the good of humanity. But humans don't follow. So Adam and Eve rebel. And this is the first sin that we see. And this sin has been passed on all humanity. All have sinned. And the human to human is first felt in this personal and sectional relationship between the man and the woman, this absolute openness, this intimacy that was there between them. Instead, now they have shame and covering. They protect themselves. They guard themselves. They're more concerned about themselves than they are about the other. That's the tragedy of the fall. A man who was created to give everything for the woman, a woman who was created to give back everything to the man, now they're protecting themselves, they're looking out for number one, and they cover, they hide. But what about this human to divine relationship? Again, 
the closeness and the intimacy that was intended to be there as God came into the garden, it's lost. This simple confidence and this fellowship they had in God is now lost and there's fear and there's hiding. I mean, here's Almighty God who can move in and, and bless them in any way. They just need to turn to him. They hide from him. They run from him. And we still see that happening in the world today. People are running from the only one who can begin to move into the mess of their lives and bring any kind of hope. Satan's strategies haven't changed. He continues to move in and get people to doubt the goodness of God and deceive and lead them away. All the desires of this world that lure our hearts away from the goodness of God, the world that he wants us to experience by following him, by following his law. And this leads to this enmity in verses 11 through 13. And we see this, just this, this relationship that's broken down, that's distorted. In verse 11, it says, who told you were naked? And notice the blame shifting that takes place. It was the serpent, the serpent deceived me. And then we find this whole sense of the blame shifting that's taking place. What is this you've done? The serpent deceived me to the man. What is this you've done? The woman gave to me. Everybody's passing the blame in this time. We've got blame shifting. And then we also have just this point of getting the other person in trouble. I'm not gonna take the blame here. I'm not gonna take the fall for this. Instead of owning their rebellion, they continue to run. Such is the case with humanity. Then in chapter three and verse 16, we finally end up with this judgment. And the judgment, first of all, in verse 15, goes to the serpent. And we don't wanna look at that. We wanna pay attention to the judgment to humanity. This is extremely important for us to understand. There is very little discussion, oftentimes in the church, of what happens in Genesis chapter three, verses 16 and following, this judgment from Almighty God to humanity. And the reason it's essential for us to understand it is because this judgment impacts every single day of our life. This is a contrast. This is what brings the contrast for the world God intended us to live in and the world as it is right now. God's design and the violation of design. There are what we might call organic consequences that happen when the fall takes place. The shame, the covering, and the human-to-human -human relationship, and then also the hiding and the fear and the human-to-God relationship but there's also a judgment. And God very specifically looks to the serpent and brings judgment, very specifically looks to the woman and brings judgment, and very specifically turns to the man and brings judgment. So humanity has judgment, and it's important for us to understand that God doesn't just judge humanity. He judges specifically the woman and the man. Now, this, there's so much more we could say about this, but we've got to understand that although we are common in humanity, there's something specific about what it means to be a man in this world and what it means to be a woman in this world. God created us different. There's an order to relationship. So much we could say about this, but notice how clear it is here because God goes to the man and he brings him a judgment that is specifically directed toward what it means to be a man living in this world. And then he goes to the woman and he issues a judgment specifically directed toward what it means to be a woman living in this world. And I think we can go to the New Testament and even build a case that although um, sanctification is common to all humanity, 
There's a specific sense in which what it means to be a man in this world, sanctification is going to look different for a man than it is for a woman on some level. And that's why Paul's call to the church in Ephesians chapter 5 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Notice the specific command given to gender here. And I think what Paul's doing here is he's actually undoing the effects of the fall, undoing the mess of what it means to be a man or woman in this world. God's call specifically to man and woman to undo the effects of the fall. This is how you're to live with one another in a redeemed marriage context. Anyway, We want to focus on the judgment here. And what's really important for us to see, what I want us to focus on, is this commonality in the judgment. It's directed specifically to the man, specifically to the woman. But notice the commonality, the word difficulty. It may be translated different ways in the Bible. The Bible translations that you have, pain, toil, difficulty. But just look for those words. It's very clear the commonality is pain or difficulty. Verse 16 To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain. I don't know what your word is there, but pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now look down with verse 17 concerning the man. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life by sweat, physical exertion. It's going to be work. See the commonality? Difficulty. Difficulty is the commonality. And I think that What we have going on here is that God is rigging the world so it won't work well. How he created it to be where he poured out blessing on humanity. Now God rigs the world so the experience of being a man in this world is convoluted. It's not going to work well. You're going to run into difficulty as a man. And for a woman, the same thing is true. Living as a woman in this world is going to be convoluted. It's not going to work real well. It's rigged. And I want us to understand, please, this is absolutely essential for us to underscore this, the difficulty of what it means to live in this world that God imposes on his creation is for our good. It's for our good. Listen, the world in which God created, it's a place of blessing. God is good to his people. Notice the one regulation God gives in the garden. It's for humanity's good. And now the difficulty that God brings into the life of the man and the woman, it's for their good. It's for their good that he does this. God's not this wrathful God. I'm going to get you. Here's your judgment. God is doing this because it's for their good. And I want to unfold that for you. I want to help you understand how this is for their good in this particular context. How can it be good? This is what we want to understand. And so as we look at the text here, I want us to point out a few more things before we get into that. And that's that their life is going to end in death. They have no idea when their life is going to end. Oftentimes, depending on our age, if we're younger, we think life's going to last forever. We've got so many years in front of us. The biblical teaching is you don't know when death is going to come, only that you're going to die. And so here's Adam and Eve. They're, they're living in this world. They're confronted with difficulty at every turn and they don't know when they're gonna die. Their life can be gone like that. And so they're paying attention to what God is saying. They're hearing this and they understand they've got difficulty in front of them. This is gonna be unsettling for them. Let me draw out one more point in the text here before I just develop this whole understanding of difficulty. Back in verse 15, 
It's what we oftentimes refer to in Old Testament studies as the first gospel. And basically what we see is the seed of the serpent in the seed of the woman. They're going to do battle with one another. The seed of the serpent is going to nip at the heels of the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And reason this is called the first gospel, because ultimately what the focus here is from the seed of the woman is going to come the Messiah. The one who's going to rule and reign, that eternal king, the one who's going to restore order to this world and bring in that eternal kingdom. That's the seed of the woman. But yet then we have the seed of the serpent, antichrists in this world, the kingdom of darkness that seeks to overcome God at every turn. That's going to be nipping at the heels of what God is doing in this world, bringing a bruise to the heel. We're going to feel the effects of the kingdom of darkness. But in the end, our hope is... The crushing of all efforts of the seed of that serpent. The crushing of all efforts of the kingdom of darkness as God ushers in his rule and his reign forever. So we already have the hope of the gospel. The world is all messed up. We've got this walking away from the goodness of God and the consequences of all of that. But God's not done. This is not stopping his plan. Already in seed form, we've got gospel And already in seed form, we see the beginnings of what the rest of the Old Testament about, even the rest of the Bible is all about. God is not going to be stopped. It's not as if God is sitting on his throne in the heavens saying, ooh, humanity really messed up here. We didn't see this one coming. No, God is in complete control through all of the events of Genesis chapter three. And so he lays down the line, there's hope. In the midst of receiving the judgment and the consequences that come with it, we see that there's hope offered to humanity. God is determined to stay involved with his creation. Notice, when Adam and Eve sinned, it's not as if God left the picture. He didn't leave the story. He comes back and says, Adam, where are you? He engages with his creation. At the end of chapter three, we see that he removes the, the, the fig leaves that they had sewed together and he makes for them garments of skin. See, this could be actually the very beginnings of the understanding of sacrifice, where blood was shed on behalf of the man and the woman, bringing atonement. Now, the text doesn't tell us that, but when we understand what happens in the rest of the Old Testament, this could be the beginning where they understood life had to be taken for the sins that they committed at this particular point. But God stays involved. Look in chapter 4. All of a sudden, we've got this issue with Cain, these feelings that he has towards his brother. God doesn't abandon humanity in the midst of their bad decisions. He comes to Cain and he says, Cain, hey, what are you thinking? This isn't good. And he works with Cain. He's engaged with Cain. He's involved with what's going on. And we're gonna see that this happens throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So chapters one through four, we've got the way God created it to be. That's the big picture of creation. And then we've got the violation of God's design how it is. That's how God intended it to be, but how it is is where we live every day of our life. And I want us to understand this. What I call this in these chapters is foundations for understanding life. That's what we're looking at here, foundations for understanding life. The, the difficulty of chapter three impacts our lives on a daily basis. And ultimately, what I want us to see is it is for our good And so when we bump into difficulty, as we live as a man or as a woman in this world, and we bump into difficulty, the difficulty of living in a fallen world, understand it's for our good. God is looking out for us. 
He's looking out for us. Now, how do we understand this? Let me, think, let me draw your attention to just the, the larger story of the Old Testament. When we think about Genesis 1 and 2, we've got a paradise there. It's this beautiful world that God created, and we've got a perfect world. If we could use that word perfect world, everything works the way it's intended to work. We don't know what life looked like. We don't know what Adam and Eve's relationship was like with one another before sin entered the picture. We get very little details, but think about Genesis 1 and 2, perfect world paradise. Now let's go to the end of the Bible. Let's go to Revelation 21 and 22. And again, here we have the restoration of this world where God gets rid of evil. He destroys it. He ushers in his kingdom. There's no more curse. All things are passed away. Everything becomes new. His righteousness rules and reigns the day. Think about these four chapters, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. And I'm going to call these the two bookends of scripture. Notice how clear it is that the story begins and it ends the same way. It begins with God's beautiful world and it ends with God's beautiful world. This is the way it works. Now, what's going on in between? Because this is what we need to, we need to really realize in our lives. We don't live in the Garden of Eden and we don't live in heaven yet. We aren't in the Garden of Eden and we aren't in heaven. That's how God intended it to be and that's how God will make it to be in the end for all of eternity. Where we live is in the world right now. We live in life how it is. The violation of God's design, a world that's fallen, a world that has sin, a world where people in their relationships with one another, they feel shame and covering and they hide themselves and it affects relationship. And we live in a world where humanity and God, there's fear and there's hiding and there's just rebellion, shaking a fist at God, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. That's the world in which we live. That's what I want to call life as we know it. Now, what is it that brings us into life as we know it? It's the experience of Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter one and two, the perfect world. This is the way God intended it to be. Genesis three is where the rebellion happens. It's where the judgment comes. And so we've got life as we know it. Now, notice that we aren't gonna stay in life as we know it forever. We've got 1 Corinthians 15 that reminds us that in the midst of life as we know it, the Lord is going to come back and he's going to take people to forever be with him. He's going to redeem us out of this world. He's going to redeem this world. It's all going to be made new. So we, we, we know how we got here, Genesis 3. We know that we're going to get out of here, 1 Corinthians 15. But this is where we live right now. And I really want us to understand this. See, Genesis is important. Genesis gives us that foundation. Genesis shows us a foundation for understanding our life and our existence. So in Genesis 3 through Revelation 20, that's where we live. And we live under the judgment of difficulty. Now, the reason I want to choose this term is because number one, it's biblical, Genesis chapter 3. But number two, I won't have a hard time convincing any of you that life is difficult. Every day, even throughout a day, we encounter things that are out of our control. Difficulty abounds. We have little control over what happens to us in this world. Difficulty awaits us. And our world is full of tragedies tornadoes and typhoons and hurricanes and earthquakes and mudslides and drought and famine and disease. We've got freezing cold temperatures, blizzards, 
things happen all over the place. And we're up against this. We know what it is. Broken relationships. We all know what it means to be in a failed relationship. And we feel the pain of that. We know what it's like to be in an abusive relationship. We feel the pain of that, whether it's physical abuse or sexual abuse or emotional abuse or verbal abuse. We, we know those kinds of pains. And we know what it's like to, to feel like God is so distant and where is he? And, and that broken relationship that God's in the process of restoring in us. We know what it's like for our heart to move away from God, even though he's good, even though he's gracious. We live in the midst of this difficulty. And this difficulty is for our good. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. For two reasons, this difficulty is our good. How does difficulty function in this world? Number one, it exposes our vulnerability. We are vulnerable. We are frail. We are but dust. God knows that, but we've got to come to know that as well. We are vulnerable. We are not king of the world. You will never be God for a day. It's just not going to happen. You are vulnerable to all these things going on in your world. The second thing that difficulty does is it heightens our thirst. And what I mean by that, we're thirsty for more. You see, we were created for the Garden of Eden, but we don't live there. But it doesn't mean we don't desire it. We were created for relationships that worked well. And we don't experience them too often, but we desire it. We were created to live in a wor world that, where everything fell into place and it's just not there. And we long for that. We long for that. So it exposes our vulnerability and it heightens our world, our, our thirst. Now let me help explain this a little bit more. It exposes our vulnerability. What I mean by that is ultimately, let's think of it in this terms. Our world is broken and we can't fix it. It's just broken down. We can't fix it. We can do everything we can to fight disease. We can do everything we can to, to get rid of illnesses, to, to try to avert famine, to protect ourselves from the elements, and we can't do it. We just can't do it. Cancer can inflict the body at any moment in time. The germs that move through this world can invade our system at any point in time. Drought can strike at any point in time. We can't control it. It's broken and we can't fix it. It also heightens our thirst. And let me put it this way. Our world is broken and we long for more. We long for a fixed world. Now, this is what difficulty does for us. This is what it stirs inside of us. And it's for our good. God intends for it to be for our good. But let's, let's pay attention to this. Go back to the garden. And you've got this world that God created for Adam and Eve. He placed them into this garden and he put one tree there with a regulation. Don't eat from this tree. And we have all of that taking place and God was doing it for their good. They just simply had to submit to him in the same way we're out of the garden and God has brought difficulty into our life and we all experience it, exposes our vulnerability, it heightens our thirst, but it's there for our good. And what God wants us to do is in the midst of it to learn to submit to him and trust him. Why? Because he's good. So Eve, don't eat of the tree. Why? Because God is good. He's good. He's watching over you. God hasn't lost control of the world. He put this tree there. He said, don't eat of it. Don't eat from it. It's for your good. So in the midst of difficulty, we can trust God. We can move toward him. We can believe in him. We can rest in him. Why? Because he's good. But what about difficulty? No, God's good. It's there for our good. Now, how is it there for our good? Well, because it exposes our vulnerability, it heightens our thirst, 
And what happens? We realize our world is broken. We can't fix it. We realize our world is broken and we long for more. And what hope do we have but to look to the creator? That's the goodness of difficulty. We are left with nothing in the end. We come to the end of ourselves. There's only one possible hope and that's to look to the creator. It's to look to the creator, the one who created everything, sustains everything, the one who brought difficulty into our existence, to look to him and say, I'm yours. I'll trust you in the midst of all of this. I look to you for life. I can't make sense of this world, but I can look to you. See, God intends for difficulty to bring us to the end of ourselves so we cry out to him. I'm so thankful that God doesn't leave me in my stubborn rebellion in a world that works because I would never turn toward him. He brings difficulty into our lives so that we feel the pain of it so that we're left with nothing but to turn toward him and look to him for life. That's what I call the goodness of difficulty. This is the problem. Humanity has two choices in the midst of the difficulty of life. Two choices. Humanity can either turn toward God and trust him in the midst of the difficulty. I'm experiencing difficulty. None of us are going to escape it. So as we're in difficulty, we can trust God or Humanity can demand relief and demand it now. See those two options? We want to consider those. Trust God or demand relief. And I'm going to call this particular focus right here to trust God, I'm going to call that faith. We're called to a life of faith. We can't fix our difficulty. We can't control our world. We are called to trust and live a life of faith. And I'm going to call this demanding relief, I'm going to call it not worship, but idolatry. That's what it is. It's idolatry. God, you're not good. I'll find help. I'll find relief and I'll find it somewhere else. I will make my work, my world work. Now think about the two things that difficulty stirs in us, vulnerability and thirst. And let's think about demanding relief right now. Ultimately, what is idolatry? What is this demanding of relief? What is it that takes us away from God and his chosen purposes for our life? What is it? Ultimately, it's because in the midst of our vulnerability, we want control and we will turn to whatever gives us a sense of control in this life, whatever seems to work for us, whichever, whatever seems to, to move into the vulnerability we feel and give us a sense of being okay. I just need more money. If I had more money, my world would be all right. I just need more friends. If I had more friends or better friends, my world would be all right. And we devote all of our energies to getting it. We demand it. We'll take it. We'll get it now. And we find our little idols. We find the gods that we set up to give us relief. I don't like feeling vulnerable. I'll find something that gives me control. Now remember, difficulty also stirs our thirst. And when we move toward relief, when we move toward our idols, what are we seeking to do at that point in time? In the midst of our thirst, we are demanding satisfaction. We will go to whatever it is that will bring us some sense of satisfaction. And oftentimes it's very sensual. Oftentimes it has to do with our senses and we pursue things that we might make, that make, make us feel better physically. It might be all different kinds of sensual, sensual kinds of things that we pursue because they give us a sense of satisfaction. Just, they make us feel better. I just want to feel better right now. 
I'll do whatever it takes to feel better because I'm thirsty and I want just a drop of satisfaction. In the midst of our vulnerability, in the midst of our thirst, we'll go after whatever works for us. That's the option. Now, what does that lead to? When we pursue our idols, ultimately what that leads to is futility and emptiness. Jeremiah 2, verses five and eight says, when you follow after emptiness, you become empty. And when you follow after, follow after idols or vain things or empty things, all you're gonna end up with is emptiness. Look at Cain. The very first example of that is in Genesis chapter four. Cain is not happy with his situation. For whatever reason, God had regard for Abel's sacrifice, but not for Cain's. And so Cain's got all this stuff going on inside of him. He's feeling something toward God. He's feeling something toward Abel. We've got all the ingredients of the fall right there. A messed up relationship with God, a messed up relationship with people. Cain's feeling all of that. He's got all this stuff going on inside. What is he gonna do? He feels vulnerable. He feels thirsty. He longs for more. What is he gonna do? Is he gonna trust God? Is he gonna worship God and say, God, I give all this to you? Or is he gonna demand relief and take, matter, take life into his own hands, solve his vulnerability, satisfy his thirst? Cain takes life into his own hands. He takes matters into his own hands. He destroys Abel. I'll get rid of my problem. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll hate, I'll murder, I'll remove and all these deeds of the flesh ultimately become our idolatry, the expression of these deeds of the flesh where we hate and we are greedy and we envy and we're jealous and we lie and we cheat, all these things to, to remove this vulnerability. I don't like feeling vulnerable. I don't like feeling thirsty. I want it now and I'll get it. I'll do whatever it takes. And that's what Cain does. Very first example in the Bible. And what does it lead to him? What does it lead to for him? Emptiness futility. And so we've got that immediate example, looking for deliverance. Now we're going to look at this verse more in detail later on, but in Isaiah 44, the essence of idolatry is to look at someone or something other than God Almighty and say, deliver me for thou art my God. Now we're going to look at that later on. The essence of idolatry is what we find in Isaiah chapter 50 where it says, instead of in the midst of darkness, notice the connection, difficulty, instead of entrusting ourselves to a faithful creator doing what's right, we'll light our own fires. We'll find a way. We'll make it work. We don't need God. We'll act as if he isn't. We'll make life work. That's one option in the difficult world in which we live. We can look to our own gods. We can look to our own idols. It ends in futility and emptiness. So as someone living in life as we know it, which is full of difficulty, we're vulnerable, we're thirsty, idolatry is a bad option. It's a bad option because it ends in futility. It ends in emptiness. So why do people do it? Because it gives them a, a sense of control. It gives them a, a taste of satisfaction, but it's futile. And that's why our world is fueled by addictions. Because when you go after emptiness, you become empty and it's this vicious cycle. I continue to pursue idols and gods that won't satisfy. And all I find at the end is more emptiness. And so I gotta have more and it just fuels it. It's just an empty existence. The option is in the midst of difficulty to turn toward the Lord. Now, what's that gonna mean for us? Remember, difficulty does two things. It exposes our vulnerability and it heightens our thirst. 
So in the midst of difficulty, feeling vulnerable, feeling thirsty, what's it going to take to worship our creator? What's it going to mean to trust him? It's going to mean in our vulnerability, as we sit in the midst of the difficulty or the darkness that we might be experiencing, in the midst of feeling like life is broken and I can't fix it, we trust and we obey. In the midst of our thirstiness, I want satisfaction, I want relief. In the midst of that, we wait eagerly. We look to him in the midst of our difficulty. We look to him and say, God, I'm gonna trust you. God, I'm gonna obey you. God, I'm gonna wait eagerly for you. I'm in pain. I can feel it right now, but I believe in you. You are God who blesses. You are a good God. And I'm feeling all this stuff right now, but I'm gonna look to, toward you. The book of 1 Peter is written to, to those who are in persecution. They're experiencing suffering. And it says in chapter four, verse 19, what are they to do in the midst of suffering? It's unfair. It's not right. They feel vulnerable. They feel thirsty. They want more. They want out of it. They want relief. And chapter four, verse 19 says to them, you are to entrust yourselves to a faithful creator and you do what is right. You entrust yourselves. That's a trust and obey. Do what is right. That's the obedience. In the midst of darkness and difficulty, the oppressiveness of suffering and persecution, God, I give my life to you. I believe in you. I will wait on you. See, that's the option. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, Paul talks about all the difficulty that he's up against as he is a part of the spread of the gospel. Pain on every front, difficulty everywhere, shipwreck and persecution and famine and sickness. And this is what he says. All of this, it's momentary light affliction in light of this eternal weight of glory. Paul says there's no comparison. It may be difficult right now. I may feel it, but it's momentary. It's light. There's an eternal weight of glory because it's worth it to move toward God in the midst of all the difficulty, to trust and obey and to wait eagerly for him because he will show up. At just the right time, Christ died for us. That's the way God works. And we're gonna find as we continue to move through the Old Testament, life is not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. And we've gotta get that right. And so this difficulty is intended to bring us to the end of ourself. It's intended to expose this vulnerability and heighten this earth. Why? Because we come to the end of ourselves and we, we have no hope but to look toward the one who created us in the first place and to trust him and, and to obey him and to wait on him. And what does that lead to? It leads to peace and to rest. Jesus comes to the crowds and says, hey, all you who are weary and burdened down, you come to me and I'll give you rest. In the midst of this world, things aren't going too well, come to me and I'll give you rest. That's what God brings. As we learn in the midst of life as we know it, which is difficult, full of difficulty, exposing our vulnerability, heightening our thirst. And as we live, our, live this particular life and walk this path, God intends for us to turn our hearts toward him and trust him because he's good. Now notice all the connections here. Here's Adam and Eve in the garden. Serpent comes along and says, are you supposed to eat of this tree? 
He says, no, 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 no. And the serpent says, you know, God's withholding something from you. In the day that you eat it, he knows your eyes will be open. Wouldn't you like your eyes to be open? Now, God has withheld that fruit from Adam and Eve for their good. They need to trust him, obey him, and wait on him. Satan works the same way today. And now we live in this world that's got all kinds of difficulty in it. And Satan wants to hurl at us all different kinds of lusts and passions, things that we can turn to, deliver me for thou art God, my God. And God says, no, 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 no. You wait on me. I'm good. I'm still good. I'm still good. I still pour out blessing to those who seek me. And so we seek and we wait. Does it mean that our difficulty is gonna go away? It doesn't mean that we'll have pain-free living, but it does mean that we'll know God. It does mean that we'll taste of who he is. And that's where joy is found. That's where life is found. That's where peace is found. That's where rest is found. To move toward him, that's the life of submission to look to our idols and to rebel. That's the life of rebellion. This one leads to peace and rest. This one leads to futility and emptiness. This one says, I will live my life to bring glory to God no matter what. But to choose our idols, what we're saying is, I will make my life work on my own. I will live as if God does not exist. Now we're gonna explore that more later. But what I want you to see now is when we come to the book of Genesis, this is not just ancient stories. This is a presentation for us of life as we know. This is, this is my experience and your experience. This is us right here. Satan hasn't changed. He's still doing the same things. The world in which we live hasn't changed that much. It's full of difficulty with a purpose. It's God's goodness to us to turn toward him and to follow him and find the peace and rest that only he provides. This is our foundation for understanding life. It's a story of a long ago, but it has everything to do with us right now. And so as we think about the world in which we live, we've got to look at our life now in light of all of this. The difficulty that you're up against right now, what is that? What does that look like for you? What does it mean for you to, in the midst of your vulnerability, in the midst of your thirst, to trust and obey and to wait eagerly? How might it be in your life that in the midst of your vulnerability, you're demanding control or in the midst of your thirst, you're demanding satisfaction and you are looking to whomever or whatever and saying, deliver me for thou art my God and your heart is moving away from God. How, what, that, what might that look like in your life right now? You see, God is calling you to something. He's calling you in the midst of this difficulty to entrust yourself to him and to do what's right. Now, why can you do that? It's because he's good. It's because he God, he's a God who wants to bless. But it's about him. It's not about you. So you come to him on his terms. And in his goodness, he's given us everything we need to know what that looks like. This is an invitation to us to know God. It's an invitation for us to enter in the deeper relationship with him. That's Genesis. Details with rich theology. Now, with this as our foundation, what's important for us to do now is look at the continuing story and to go to the book of Exodus and see, well, how does this really play itself out in the story? Now that we've got this foundation, what is God gonna do now? And that's the focus of the next time we have together.